Hey everyone and welcome to the latest Digital Foundry Direct Weekly and it's a very special one because we're celebrating, we're celebrating the launch of our Patreon revamp, a relaunch if you will and uh, joining me to talk about it, we've got the full house here pretty much, uh, beginning with John Linneman. Hey Rich, yeah, had to be here fresh off of the most recent project, uh, Right. Yeah. Oof, it was dicey getting it done but it is finished. we'll talk about that in a bit and uh tom morgan brighton he's joining us hello there how's it going absolutely fantastic and uh yeah he's got a lot to share about the game that we just can't stop talking about the new cyberpunk 2077 (laughs) we'll talk about that a bit later and uh finally last but certainly not least the man of the hour oh thank you the man who helped to uh, put the new Metro Exodus on the radar via a frankly phenomenal video. It's Alex Batalia. Yeah, uh, it's less bright here though, and in Brighton and everywhere else. I don't know how well people can see that in the audience, but it is, it's, it's basically winter in Berlin again. <laughs> uh. <laughs> okay, so where should we begin? Um, mm-hmm. Let's talk about the Patreon relaunch. It should be live by the time you see this. In fact, it will be, otherwise I'll probably be losing my job. And um, (laughs) um, this will be the first episode that will be going out early to our Patreon supporters. So Mm -hmm. it's been a bit of an extended project, this one. Uh, We didn't really want it to disrupt the workflow too much. We've been doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes. We've had Audi, obviously, doing a lot of the wrangling. Um, Don't really know where to begin on this. I suppose... The Digital Foundry premium tier, we can talk about that a bit. Lots of uh, uh, freebies and extras to, to enjoy their 4K version of the Metal Gear Solid 2 uh, AI upscale trailer there. Um, some DF Classic um, FPS analysis remastered from the PlayStation 360 era, PlayStation mm-hmm. 3 360 era. And uh, we're going to be launching soon Tech Focus, a new episode there from Alex. Um, which I think you're really excited about. For sure, yeah. Um, I can already decide. It's going to be about global illumination, which seems pretty topical, given everything that's happening right now. And uh, it's still it's still being scripted, which because uh, Tech Focus is a little bit different than another video where I go. In other videos, I'll go out and I'll record games, and I already know what I'm talking about. But Tech Focus already starts from a theoretical level, and then I have to search out things from my memory, essentially where I want to record in games. Um, so. It's a little bit different, still in production, but I think everyone will like it when it's done. Excellent. And obviously um, available now to those who have supported the DF Retro supporter tier. Frankly, phenomenal Quake video. Uh, do you mm-hmm. want to give us some headlines? We'll talk about it a bit more in depth later. But John, what's it all about? Yeah, so uh, basically the idea was to go back to Quake because that was the first game that I covered for DF Retro under that branding that's the whole thing that kind of got the series started. But that original video was five minutes long and was mostly focused on the Saturn version. It was just kind of a quick thing that I did. Uh, but I wanted to go back and kind of talk about the game. And what I realized is that Quake is such a broad topic to the point where the video could have been like eight hours and there's still more to talk about. Like I actually had to cut down parts of my script originally just to keep the pacing up because there's so much to cover with this game. Uh, And that's kind of the whole thing about it is going through its importance to the game industry, why it's still such a great game, uh, but really exciting is really testing it across a wide range of hardware, including the the rendition Verite, 
which finally right. wanted to get some good footage out there of V-Quake because that's the MS-DOS only uh, accelerated version of Quake for that specific graphics card. And it looks completely different from every other uh, conversion or so- source port, I guess, of Quake. It's different than GeoQuake and everything that came after, and it's it's really interesting to look at. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Well, we're going to be talking more about the uh, the Patreon relaunch a bit later on in the video, but suffice to say, all of this uh, uh, kind of tentpole uh, content is available now for our supporters at the appropriate tiers. But I think the thing to stress is that that's going to be time limited. So there is going to be uh, the opportunity for everybody to see it at some point. Oh yeah, of course. Let's talk about the biggest news story of the week, I think. And it was actually an honor for us to break it, which was Metro Exodus Enhanced Edition. So, wow, this is is pretty incredible, right, Alex? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I do preface it in the video and the video's title does describe it, but it's essentially the first time we're looking at a game um, specifically on PC as well, where it requires ray tracing hardware acceleration because they kind of went back into that original game from 2019, ripped out all of the rasterized faked lighting to emulate bounce lighting, and then drove it all now through ray tracing. And they expanded on the ray tracing uh, with a lot of features like ray traced emissives, ray traced reflections, ray traced bounce lighting with infinite bounces and things like that uh, from every single light source that cast shadows. So it's really big, and I think uh, it just represents kind of like a, another milestone on this eventual road towards ray tracing being embraced by every single sector of the kind of video game graphics industry. I think that, and, Alex, uh, that, that's yeah. the most impressive thing to me is, uh, and this is what's interesting, is the fact that they went back and basically re-arted the game specifically for this. This is sort of a pr- demonstrates the potential for fully ray traced games that do not have a fallback for classic rasterization. Uh, and it's it's a dramatic difference. I mean, obviously they've improved their tech, but the, the original 2019 version, as you covered, that was just a single bounce for the, uh, I guess- Sun the, and oh, moon. Yeah. yeah, the sun and moon. And then I guess the add-on had uh, more direct lights as well. But this one, it's like having infinite bounce from every light source like that. That's incredible. It's a- it's a really, really big deal. And I was kind of the privileged aspect of it other than breaking out <clears throat> into an exclusive video, describing it, doing the usual analysis, even critique. I mean, uh, obviously when we're given an exclusive, it's a privilege and we don't want to be kind of jerks about it. Uh, so we do obviously still inject critique into it. There's like a section of the video that's saying like, okay, so it's real-time ray tracing. It can't just be a magic bullet. What what are the catches? And then I go through all the catches and things like that. Um, so, you know, it's the really big part of that video beyond kind of the ability to do the exclusive part uh, was getting the behind the scenes access to get an understanding from the developer point of view uh, of what it means to them to light the game fully with ray tracing now. And there, all I did was I asked, okay, could you please <clears throat> send me a video of your old workflow in a variety of scenes and then the new workflow alongside of it? And in each video, it was the exact same thing. The artist placing all these lights, adjusting them manually, then creating like the point lights, uh, the fill lights as they're called to fill up the scene with lighting and spending all this time. And they were doing it just for the purpose of the video. So it would actually probably take a lot longer (laughs) than what I show in the video, by the way, because they would try and do it to a more perfect degree. Um, 
And the ray tracing uh, difference there for them from the artist, the lighting artist perspective is essentially uh, not having any of these fill lights at all, making sure the lights are marked up so that they're actually counted as a part of ray tracing, and then essentially clicking a button that makes sure that they're enabled in the ray tracing view of the game. And that's really about it. And that's, that's huge. It's not only, like John was saying, the we're seeing the reaping the benefits of a game fully lit by ray tracing and seeing what it looks like visually. But for the de developer artist perspective, this is saving them tons of time mm -hmm. while also giving them kind of like this systemics, I don't know, environment where lighting makes sense with a lot less guessing. It's, um, I, I yeah. love the fact that it, it's almost turning uh, game lighting into something that's more like lighting a, a film set or, you know, tr where you actually have to take into consideration the nature of light. Like what happens when you put a light next to certain materials or in certain places? Uh, the way that might traditionally behave in a game is not the way light really works. And this comes much closer to actually simulating real light, which is... Uh, it's th this is why I think it's going to be really fascinating to see because we're basically uh, moving towards leaving a lot of those tricks behind and just relying on like an actual simulation now. And yeah, this is a this is a great first step for that. I think there's a, a f I've got a lot of questions about this, Alex. And I was reading the discourse on our Discord last night, and I think a lot of our uh, supporters have got a lot of questions about this as well. But I think first of all, a statement: this is the new. 4A engine, basically. So the next 4A game, I mean, at the moment, Metro Exodus, if you haven't got a ray-facing GPU, you just fall back to the old Metro Exodus. That's there. It's not going away. The new game, there will be no fallback. I mean, it's probably a few years off. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, the, but the point is, this is the new 4A engine. <laughs> uh, so th that's it. That's it for rasterization as far as 4A games are They're concerned. They're done. To the They're best done. of our knowledge. Yeah. And this is <laughs> it's amazing. And, you know, it's important to stress, they're the first, um, but they're not certainly not going to be the last. But I guess the questions I was picking up on, I mean, people were blown away by it quite rightly. Now, the question was, can a console run this? Uh, because obviously we've got the Enhanced Edition coming on um, series consoles and PlayStation 5. But, you know, we saw some phenomenal visuals there. Are these consoles up to it? Totally. Um, I mean, we've already looked in other videos in the past, uh, kind of examining the AMD versus uh, NVIDIA kind of br like difference, uh, I would say, in their ray tracing performance. And, you know, obviously we found out for like incoherent rays, it's like two to four times slower, depending upon what you're doing. But the whole point is that uh, even with the, the AMD hardware being slower, that's also found in consoles, they are just bigger GPUs in general. This is already running on an RTX 2060. Uh, if you turn it down to like normal settings, high, high tessellation, you're getting 1080p 60 for a lot of, lot of the experience. Uh, couple that internal 1080p resolution with something like temporal anti-aliasing upsampling, uh, then you essentially are going to have a visual experience that is very compelling. On the console side, you're going to have ray tracing performance that is better than an RTX 2060, of course, probably like 2060 super-ish, a little bit higher maybe, a little bit lower, depending upon what's going on. But then all this extra uh, rasterization performance uh, helping out, it's totally doable. I would imagine they're probably going to end up using like the, the normal ray tracing setting there. Um, which is like quarter resolution of the internal resolution um, for the ray tracing, for the ball, the bounce light and everything like that. And then 
uh, they've already kind of said it. Uh, they're going to be using temporal anti-aliasing upsampling reconstruction to get a 4K image targeting 60 FPS. And I imagine there's DRS in there too, so it'll probably float a bit. But yes, uh, in spite of everything, the video was captured on an incredibly high-end PC, like RTX 3090, 10900K, like totally boss system. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but uh, you know, it, as I showed in the video, the higher the output or the higher internal resolution is, the better this kind of lower end RT modes look. And you know, consoles will be sitting down there in the lower end, but it still looks really compelling. You're not missing out on anything. And yeah, consoles totally. They're also targeting yeah. 60 frames per second, aren't they? Yeah, that that's the Which... that's the interesting part. So. There's a lot to talk about there because some of the environments in the game are way heavier than the others. Yeah. So like uh, if you go on the like I showed it once in the video on the taiga map, which is like this outdoor section with all these um, kind of trees and things like that. There's indoor sections of the taiga map where you're in these little like huts and light can go inside the hut and then go outside again through tiny little openings. This is terrible for ray tracing hardware, by the way. It's like the worst thing you can yeah. do. Um, <laughs> and there, like, the, the GPU utilization skyrockets, like the 3090 is like baking inside the PC. Uh, I really do wonder how, how the dynamic resolution will cope on something like a console game in something like that instance, like if it will start like dropping really, really low. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see, uh, but I think 60 FPS is doable primarily on the GPU side. CPU is uh, interesting because I did find uh, once again that the 3600 in the new version, uh, the, that is the Ryzen 3600, was rather CPU limited uh, given uh, like what's happening on screen yeah, the, at times. The game seems pretty c CPU heavy at points, I found. That's, that's definitely where I've been bottlenecked in the past as well. I mean, this is the new engine. I haven't tried it yet, but uh, the 4A stuff, it, it, it does put a heavy load on your CPU. Yeah, and uh, so and ray tracing makes that even heavier. So I just can't wait to get my hands on it and kind of tear it apart, see what they're doing to get it running, see where the bottlenecks are, see where they aren't. Uh, but I definitely think, based upon everything I've seen already from this enhanced edition on PC, on a really low-end PC, the lowest one you can get really <clears throat> for like ray tracing GPU performance, RTX 2060 there, um, totally doable on consoles, and it's probably going to be pretty awesome. Cool. The, uh, I guess, another interesting aspect that we d I didn't mention in the video necessarily, and we haven't really put it out there yet, is that we also have a variety of interviews. Well, I have two right now. Uh, technically, I have one interview with Ben Archard and Oles, uh, who's unfortunately his family name I can always not pronounce very correctly, so I don't <laughs> want to say it and embarrass myself. For, uh, but uh, essentially, the uh, kind of CTO tech lead of um, Four Eight Games. Uh, going into the depths of what the ray tracing implementation is, how it works now in comparison to how it used to work, what some of the limitations are, what some of the strengths are, all these kind of things that I think a lot of hardcore tech nerds are really going to want to be uh, reading. And that should be coming out in the future, as well as I just, uh, just the other day received back some uh, answers to questions that I uh, sent off to their executive producer, John Bloch, and kind of this is more it's still very technical, but it's asking questions about the effect on game development and uh, some other very 4A specific questions. But there's more coming out as a result of this exclusive uh, thing that we did with Metro here. And you'll see it on the Eurogameware website in the, in the future. I love this, Alex, because I, I can feel uh, your love for 4A and Metro stuff. It's pretty <laughs> much, and it makes sense because I think Metro 2033 was like the next crisis at the time in a way. 
Like, very different mm-hmm. looking game, but when that first shipped, it was kind of the next benchmark in PC graphics. And uh, I want to say, really, that, that your video on this was was exceptionally well done. I really enjoyed oh, it. Thanks, Jack. So, tremendous thanks. job, dude. Yeah, thanks. Good stuff, yeah. And uh, I can only just say that video, that was just phenomenal. I mean, it took a long time, but the effort mm-hmm. was hugely worth it. And uh, it was just awesome for for me to kind of help enable that. Yeah. It's just awesome stuff. Okay, well, let's move on. This one's for you, Tom. It's <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Mortal, <laughs> Mortal Shell, the game that won't go away. It's yeah. It's the game that's kind of like Outriders, except we do cover it. And, <laughs> uh, no, are, nobody's but, saying, where's Mortal Shell? But Tom is like, here's Mortal yeah. Shell. Well, it's a fascinating project. And uh, just to, to stress, we will get around to, to Outriders. Um, yeah. And, and we will explain why uh, we've been delaying it when we do the coverage. But anyway, the point is, Mortal Shell, PlayStation 5. There's a whole history of weirdness surrounding this. Um, but yeah. it finally looks as though it has been resolved. Is that correct? Yeah, I think it's just it's been a weird up and down roller coaster for this one. <laughs> and for you know, it's um, it's odd that we get so invested in in a game like uh, this isn't a massive scale game, but it's it's like the developer clearly cares a lot about it and making sure it runs well. So the history is it ran. You know, it ran with issues when it first launched on PS5 and Series X. Then they added a patch, which made it seemingly worse on PS5 and just absolutely ruined the 60 FPS playback. Um, it had, uh, yeah, it was pretty much in the board, you know, broadly the right place when it first arrived on PS5. But they took it a massive step back to make it run at the same resolution as Series X, 1800p. And uh, we were just a bit you know, head in hands at that point. I remember John and I were talking about it, just saying yeah. this is the wrong direction to take your game. Don't do it. But it, but it. but it wasn't actually the same resolution because 1800p dynamic on Series X and it was yeah. 1800p locked for some mysterious reason on PlayStation 5 and it seemed to make a huge impact to it. Now, the new patch essentially brings it into line with Series X, right? So it's 1800p dynamic and performance is hugely improved. Yeah, I, I've given uh, us some footage to run on this, but it's uh, we've got a side-by-side uh, between PS5 and Series X. And it's, yeah, they've they've locked, oh, sorry, they've given DRS to both sides and they both mm-hmm. run at 1800p dynamic. And, uh, well, PS5 is still a little bit behind. Like, I think that's just the, the main highlight, really. You've got... Uh, that sort of chamber at the end of this long dungeon, which suddenly dips into the 50s on PS5 and not on Series X, but that's fine. I think mm-hmm. that's that's still it just it's just fine. Uh, so if you really really are invested in Mortal, uh, what do you call it? Shall we call it Mortal? You, you mortal call it Mortal Coil, coil for some reason. <laughs> mortal Coil. It's just a Shakespearean thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You wouldn't. Be, you'd be amazed how many times the script comes up with mortal shell. Tom, and mortal if, coil. if this game is not your game of the year for 2021, yeah. I'm going to be disappointed. <laughs> well, look, uh, let's let's just just quickly talk about the game here because we've got so obsessed with frame rates and image quality and yeah. 1440p, 1800p dynamic, blah 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 blah. Is it actually a good game? It's a good. 
uh, take on the Dark Souls formula. Yeah, like it, it's clearly like a, the team have a passion for that style, that Dark Souls style, and they thought, what if we put a twist on it? Um, I don't think it nails the combat mechanics as tightly as uh, from Software's games. So that is a major failing, I feel, you do, when you come into this. Yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah, yeah. so the twist is the mortal shell, right? Mm -hmm. That's literally the twist, right? You have like a, a shield, right? Is the, um, am I mistaken? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. you've always had a shield in Dark Souls. But well, no, no, no. It's like a, like, a, like a little shell of your character. You basically become like a statue. Yeah, to, right? Yeah. Isn't that it? Deflect yeah. damage. That's it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, good, good timed use of it. Uh, any point during a move, you can then, link, you know, avoid damage and then I carry frame. on with your yeah. attack. Okay. Right. Uh, so it's a, it's a neat idea. And there's a, a lot of stuff in there which kind of just plays with, you know, um, varies on the formula Dark Souls mm -hmm. laid out. Mm -hmm. Items, you kind of, they slowly drip feed you health once you use them. And there's still a great air of mystery to it. Um, you know, the, the aesthetic is slightly more gothic and I think people might get a kick out of that. <laughs> Lots of, it's a good sort of visual design. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I was actually kind of impressed with it. I have to, I have yeah. to admit, you had me captured for that one video and uh, it's, it's yeah. a cool game. It has a bit of a learning curve for sure with that mortal shell system, but I, I see the appeal. Yeah. Yeah, you, uh, weirdly, the, the the nearest touchstone I can think of in terms of the the visual aesthetic is a, uh, you know, remember that uh, Monty Python sketch with the the knights who say knee. Yeah, uh, oh yes, it's like that forest. <laughs> who could forget <laughs> the, the black forest, the the misty forests, and the, <laughs> the, the tall helmets. And <laughs> it's exactly bring me that. a shrubbery. I hope they make a uh, special appearance somewhere in there. Oh, they probably do. <laughs> but the, this uh, is phenomenal. I Except think, for uh, they, they are no longer the knights who say knee, so we have to keep that yeah. in mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think another interesting thing about Mortal Shell is, and it probably won't ever be covered now just due to what's happening. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that we also have to cover in the next uh, period alongside doing tech focus and things like that, is the PC version yeah. of Mortal Shell is being updated, if it hasn't already, to have uh, DLSS and uh, ray tracing, and that's a very small team. And the only reason why that's possible is because, uh, you know, UE4 at this point in time, Unreal Engine 4, uh, supports DLSS and uh, ray tracing features very easily, just like plug-in mm -hmm. kind of style. So it uh, probably looks good, probably looks even better uh, than what you can find on console, but I don't know if I'll ever even be able to check that out. Who knows? Well, look, you know, Mortal Show is quickly becoming the game of DF Direct Weekly. Oh, gosh. You've got to keep the momentum going, Alex. Yeah, that's You're going to have to talk about <laughs> so, it on here. So, so ah! maybe the people maybe must you load it up, load it up, give it a go. Tell us about mm -hmm. the ray tracing. Um, okay. And um, yeah, you know, just uh, just keep that momentum rolling. <laughs> we, need, we need to know more. <laughs> Near replicants. Yes. Um, oh yes. <clears throat> so I haven't actually had time to take a look at this myself yet. Uh, we were going to cover it, but then uh, the code came in late. Not sure whether we will cover it. But uh, I'm looking at the docket here, and under uh, notes, it says played and super good, uh, which sounds like John <laughs> Linneman has something to say about it. Yes. Near Replicant version 1.22474487139. Uh, I, I started, <laughs> well said. I started playing it this week. Um, it's, it's really interesting thus far. So first of all, I, I, I've played a, 
a lot of these games going back, the Yoko Taro games going back to the original Dragon Dragoon or whatever it was called in the West, I guess. Dragon God. Dragon God, that's right. Yeah. Uh, from Kavia. Yeah. Um, and I do have and played the original Nier back on PlayStation 3, and it's it's really cool. But I felt that mechanically Nier Automata by seeking out the help from Platinum Games that made a huge difference in terms of the action. Well, Nier Replicant is basically a remake of, of the uh, 2010, I think it was, uh, version, the original PS3 and 360 game, but it feels so much more uh, polished and just nice to play somehow. It's Basically, it's mm. it's it doesn't look like a next-gen game necessarily, and it's not. It's still it's a last-gen game with backwards compatibility on the new machines, but it's been updated to run at full 60 frames per second, higher resolution, uh, they seem to have implemented the the GI solution from Nier Automata. Maybe I actually don't know if it's the same engine though, but because that was the Platinum engine. Uh, but it does it, it. They actually use this really well. There's a lot of this high contrast scenery with like light pouring in and striking uh, the stone, the sand, and other materials, and sort of bouncing around in a way that looks really cool. Because just like the original, the art style is very monochromatic. That's kind of part of the look. But this this new pass on the lighting is really awesome. And I also love the run cycle uh, in this game. Uh, you know, I, I, I enjoyed Dad Near, by the way. They, they switched the characters around because in the original Japanese version, you had one protagonist, uh, the brother, and in the U.S. version or in the Western version, you actually played as the father. And it was like, you know, uh, this time it's it's I guess everybody it's it's been centralized. But there's something about the run cycle. This is something that really sticks out to me, uh, where just the connection with the, the... There's this kinetic energy towards running around the world that feels so good. And it really made me realize just how important it is to get those nuts and bolts right. Uh, I love so, the way it feels. So in terms of combat, though, is it sticking to the original layer or is it going autom automatized? Oh, yeah, I mean, it's it's... It's much more, it feels better than the original Nier, and it, it has okay. a lot of, but it, it feels like a pretty, um, they haven't, it hasn't evolved significantly, but it has definitely improved. I actually haven't gone back to the original Nier since I originally played it, so I kind of want to pop it in again and just refresh my memory on how it feels, because it's, uh, it feels great now. And I will also say I'm playing on the Xbox Series X version because that's the version we, we got in to check out. And uh, loading times are super quick on there. And there are loading between... There's loading times between the different zones. So it's usually about five or six seconds. And the frame rate is completely 100% locked on that system. I'd be curious to see what it's like on the last-gen consoles. But unlike Nier Automata in its original form, there are none of those weird micro hitches or any sort of issues with the general performance. It's just completely 100% stable and it feels really nice to play as a result. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's like they took that original game and they, they polished it up. It doesn't feel like a new game, but it feels so much more refined than before in a way that I'm really enjoying. And I, like I said, I, I want to go back and pop in the PS3 original again, just to refresh my memory on how it's changed. But uh, I like it so far. It's definitely something I, I think I will play through. So I guess my question, John, a lot of people would have jumped on the franchise with Automata. If they played that, enjoyed it, do you think they're going to enjoy playing the original game with this remaster? Definitely. Or is it just very different? Oh, no, no. It's, it's, 
they they share a lot of elements um i think that what's interesting about the original near though is that it kind of um it plays with expectations in an interesting way and this is what made it impactful in the day where like the first however many hours you play the game it feels very um rote in a way you're kind of running around you're doing some fetch quests, and you're thinking this is just kind of a standard rpg-ish thing uh but then it turns everything on its head and it really goes in some interesting directions and obviously automata built upon those elements but i think if you enjoyed that game it's definitely worth going back to experience this one because it's been polished up so nicely now uh and the story stuff is fantastic as usual so definitely recommend it well let's move on and uh, we're going to be talking about uh, game stack we discussed it in part last week and uh, there's a couple of presentations that you want to pick up on i think alex yeah i guess uh the first one i want to mention is the direct storage on pc uh these are all by the way i, th I do recommend if you're interested in them there's a Microsoft game developer, GameStack, YouTube channel. These are all really easily accessible. And I, I will only give essentially short summaries of like what's interesting from the game gamer perspective uh, on them. And if you're actually more interested, please do watch the actually original videos. But the direct storage on PC um, presentation was very interesting because it gave uh, a higher level understanding of what uh, direct storage means for PC. Direct storage is essentially as a part of the Xbox Velocity architecture. It's a remake of the Windows IO or storage kind of software stack. It's how definitely needed. Yeah, it's, it's really old at this point in time. Yeah. I mean, it's for legacy reasons. Um, and that has problems for taking advantage of what SSDs can do, as in like you can, you don't just need like serialized uh, grabs off of a hard disk platter uh, with an SSD. You can grab many multiple files really quickly with instant access at once on an SSD. And the Windows IO storage stack really can't take advantage of this. Uh, so it's about first that, that software side, making sure that like multiple parallelized, you know, device reads can be done really quickly. And then also the kind of decompression uh, aspect of it is very different on PC because on PC you have system memory, you have video memory, uh, and uh, to essentially get things uh, off the hard disk into video memory requires a kind of trip into system memory and then uh, like a kind of response from the CPU to get things from system memory then onto the GPU. Uh, it's, it, it's a roundabout thing, and that's just the way PCs have been built and worked for ages. It has its advantages and its disadvantages. But this is kind of about getting rid of the middleman uh, situation where the uh, kind of CPU is dominating the ability for the GPU to grab things off of the hard drive. So it has essentially now a trip where it goes from the hard drive and shuffles into system memory, but then shuffles immediately into uh, VRAM. And this is essentially giving the console-like experience of grabbing things from the hard drive into VRAM now. Uh, another part of this uh, to make it more worthwhile is not just grabbing things from the hard drive, but also grabbing them in a compressed state, not like compressed textures, but like a compression shell or block around all this data, uh, much like you would see on like Kraken or BC Pack uh, on the Microsoft side, and then decompressing that into the GPU to multiply 
the kind of essential bandwidth that you're getting uh, of for so you could have like larger textures or more data or just use less uh, bandwidth while doing that. The way it works on the console side uh, for both PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series X and S is there's a hardware decompression block uh, where they uh, kind of to save essentially cycles on the GPU or CPU make a custom little unit that is really small and all it does is decompress stuff uh, in, in very specific formats. On this PC side, GPUs and motherboards and CPUs don't have this because they're kind of generalized designs. Uh, so Microsoft has written a OpenCL or essentially GPU compute uh, decompressor that works on the GPU. So the GPU takes a little bit of its power and uses that for decompressing data off the disk as it goes and flies through system RAM into VRAM. And this is a uh, pretty awesome. Uh, it's taking advantage of the kind of like the open nature of uh, PC hardware. It's pretty hard to expect developers to already have like hardware decompression units on GPUs or something like that. Uh, and it won't take up a lot of uh, GPU time and it saves a ton of CPU time, which is really great. And the interesting thing about this model that Microsoft's developing, and it still is going to be advancing in the future, there's a couple hints in this presentation that they're looking at a way of getting even rid of the aspect of the slight little moment when it enters system RAM. They're looking at kind of working around that in the future. And also the OpenCL kind of decompression software they've written that runs on the GPU, it's mappable to hardware in the future. So should NVIDIA, Intel, or AMD uh, want to include hardware decompression units on their GPUs, this OpenCL thing would just map to it rather perfectly. Uh, so it's a lot of, lot of info. It's still uh, semi-early stages. I think developer previews for it start in the summer of 2021, so a couple months from now. Uh, but it'll be a pretty big change in this uh, hardware uh, kind of space on PC and will give us those sweet, uh, you know, access times and load times that we want to see to take advantage of the hardware. Because right now, if you have seven gigabytes per second SSD on PC, well, it's, it's not doing too much actually. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Oh, and yeah. um, did you cover off the sample of feedback stream yeah, presentation? Yeah, this, yeah. Sorry, I'm just talking so much. Sample uh, <laughs> <laughs> feedback streaming. This is another thing. This applies both to Xbox and PC again. Uh, it's supported on NVIDIA's Turing and Ampere and above, as well as RDNA 2. And this is essentially the ability for the graphics card in its shaders to have a better understanding of which parts of a texture need to be loaded into the scene. Uh, that's essentially it. And as a result of that, there's a less guessing uh, by game developers when they set up a texture cache and it rolls in and out in real time. So it's always constantly rolling in new textures. And then shortly thereafter, there's this like buffer period where it rolls them back out again as it realizes that it doesn't need them like older ones. And the reason why this is such a good thing is because even though you may have like, let's say a, let's say something like a 2.5 gigabytes per second uh, NVMe drive, uh, instead of just always constantly using that and filling it with textures that are not necessarily even viewed on screen, this is a big deal. This happens actually really often in games. Uh, it's only filling them with what they need. Uh, so you can have much, much higher resolution textures and not have to worry about going over budget. And actually you're decreasing the budget by quite a lot. The, the numbers they were showing off for a 
very simple testing with, uh, I would say, not even the most intense uh, kind of materials you could probably have uh, were just great. And it'll only be better when it's in the hands of real developers. And uh, I guess from the console comparison perspective, uh, sampler feedback streaming, this kind of multiplier for uh, hardware texture memory is uh, interesting because Xbox Series X, of course, as we know, or Xbox Series S has like a smaller bandwidth on its uh, SSD speed in comparison to the PlayStation 5. Well, it, it doesn't actually need to be a big disadvantage with something like sampler feedback streaming in place because uh, it's not going to be wasting, I would say, precious bandwidth cycling in new textures that it may not even be displaying anyway. So um, it's, it's just really cool tech. And the only problem with it is that I would say is that it requires developer pickup, which is another part of this presentation was is essentially Microsoft trying to pitch to developers, please take advantage of these great software things we're giving to you. Um, and so it, it will have a pickup time. It's not something that just the hardware does by itself. It needs developers to code against it. And as a result of that, uh, it may take a little bit before we see it in games. I think we're going to see it immediately, though, in something like Halo Infinite or um, any of the Microsoft titles, yeah. Yeah, I think on a general level, Microsoft have got a bit of a, a challenge on their hands because um, obviously there are hardware features that Series X has that PlayStation 5 doesn't have. And um, PlayStation 5, if we assume that that's kind of like the base, the baseline, you know, almost like the critical mass of the market, you know, why should developers embrace these features if they're not going to get any re return from them from... Um, uh, from the PlayStation 5. So it's it's a bit of a challenge for Microsoft to evangelize that and to get take up, I think. And it's the same with the other features that the uh, the Series X has. Right, Alex, you've done a lot of talking, but I'm going to give you a break. <laughs> Tom, you've been looking at Genshin Impact, PlayStation 5. Tell us more. Uh, it's an interesting one. Uh, we've kind of missed this uh, since it released uh, late last year, um, we <laughs> sort of uh, saw it as a free-to-play game, very anime-focused, um, and it was only it was on PS4 and Pro, and we had so much more uh, pertinent things to get to, I guess, at that time. So um, they've released a proper PlayStation Five app for it this week, and um, it gave us a good reason to just jump back in and see what exactly this game is about. Um, it's from developer Muhoyo, um, and it's very much free to play. And yeah, it's um, Unity based uh, in terms of the engine, which I think, I, I don't know. It, my impression of the engine so far is it's uh, certainly got issues, you know, if it's not handled, you know, uh, properly sometimes, like with frame rates, if uh, there's certainly, certainly some uh, difficult cases, especially. Uh, when it comes to switch conversions or with unity but i did have hope going into this one because ps4 and pro run at 30 fps uh, as the target but they just didn't do it no it wasn't smooth at all i was kind no. of shocked at the performance to be honest <laughs> yeah given the game's visuals yeah same um, and then the other surprise was they they did add a what do you call it a soft backwards compatibility uh back compat light to the game for PS5 till this week to give it 60 FPS. And it was just like still a quite a bad idea. It just didn't do 60. It was like between numbers. 
But, um, you know, so this PS5 proper update brings in uh, full 4K support, better textures, better loading times, and a few other bits and pieces. But um, I, I can say, like, without spoiling too much of the video, like, uh, it is... <laughs> It's the frame rate side of things is just woeful. I was just like, the further I get into that game, the more I realize <laughs> how bad this is. Even in just, the native PS5 version, it's still that bad. Even in the native PS5 version, it was so bad. I, I literally, you know how you sometimes can boot up the wrong version of the game because of the way the PS5 front end is structured. You can just start it and you're like, oh, actually, I'm in PS4. Let's go back out and swap to the PS5 app. No, I was just in the PS5 app. It's just, I couldn't believe it. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting game. Very, very sort of uh, charming. It's got that anime aesthetic, which, uh, you know, might, it's a bit uh, Marmite, I guess, depending on where you fall on that. But uh, well, I guess my, yeah. my question for you, Tom, is uh, if it's still got the uh, Back Compat Plus support on PS4, should you use the PS4 PS4 version of the app, or should you use the PS5 one? So this is something I'm digging into. I don't know the answer. Something I'm going to find out today. But uh, yeah, there is a case for that because of the enhancements they gave PS5. It could be very interesting. So I'll find out today, and uh, we'll uh, we'll see in the final analysis. Which um, yeah. Okay. Okay. Good stuff. Well, let's move on, Alex. You're back. Sorry. I'm going to demand more words from you. <laughs> and uh, we're going to be talking about Returnal, uh, Housemark's yeah. PlayStation 5 debut. A fascinating yeah. release. Tell us more. Yeah, I guess it's, uh, it's a little different because this is a console title, console exclusive title on PlayStation 5. So it's not something I usually cover, but John and Tom indisposed uh, for a variety of reasons and I'm covering it. And it turns out to be just a surprisingly delightful game. Uh, mm -hmm. From a tech perspective, it's very interesting because it's UE4 and Housemarque usually in the past, other than their kind of multiplayer game they made most recently, was always custom tech. Yep. Uh, but they throw in their own little stylistic uh, design into this tech here with it using a lot of particle effects where I do wonder if they're using the standard particle system of UE4, and I almost think they're not yeah. at this point in time, given how extensive it is. Uh, so it is very interesting visually. Uh, the game design is also top tier. Uh, it does, uh, uh, I would say, it's a lot more interesting than most AAA titles to, to, for me because it's uh, telling its story through its gameplay and it does it very well. And uh, it's just generally good fun. It's a little hard though, so it's not necessarily for everyone. But uh, as a part of this, uh, uh, it is, is it also an interesting data point for the future of what when we talk about image quality, because I know a lot of people will probably have seen the video by the time this comes out uh, to our non-Patreon backers or just to the general audience, and they'll have seen that uh, when doing uh, pixel counting and looking at the image quality of the game, it does suffer. Uh, it is kind of advertises, I believe, dynamic 4K, and it is obviously outputting a real 4K image in the aspect that it is actually 4K pixels, but the internal resolution is uh, pre being upsampled through reconstruction looks to actually be 1080p. Um, and obviously this is interesting just from my perspective as we can have a 1080p DLSS image 
uh, being upsampled to 4K and it looks really, really good. But if you take normal TAAU, like what Unreal Engine 4 has, and you do that same thing, it's less, less successful. Uh, so there are a lot of, uh, well, a lot, there are enough visual artifacts in the game due to this uh, being a thing. But in the end, uh, people are gonna probably be focusing a lot on that, which is a little bit of a- They shouldn't. A shame, that it's a shame, but- I think yeah. we discussed in that video is that they, Housemark made all the right decisions here. It's a beautiful sure. 60 yeah, frames yeah. per second game with unbelievable amount of particles on screen and just this gorgeous art direction. It's very uh, Prometheus inspired, but with a lot of other uh, elements as well. Like I was really kind of stunned by how it looks in motion to the point where, you know, that image quality issue, I don't really think it's a huge issue when you're just playing the no. game. Well, it's, it's also, you know, targeting 60 FPS and doing exactly. a rather fine job at it. And that's the whole point. It's very stable, um, yeah. In the end. Um, and this is unsurprising though, because <laughs> like, in the end, uh, if, if a game is very, doing a very expensive visual effects, resolution always has to suffer. It's, there's no free lunch. Uh, either when you're paying it in hardware, or you're paying it in pixels, or you're paying it in frame rate. So uh, they're doing a lot of crazy stuff with the uh, particles. And apparently, this, is a, this one's a little bit harder to put my finger on. Um, the, the PlayStation 4 or PlayStation blog did mention ray trace lighting in the game. I can't find really direct evidence for it. It can be something like RTAO. It could also technically be something like RTX GI, which um, to describe that really quickly, it's essentially like the game already uses like what typical rasterized probe lighting for its global illumination, but then ray tracing is done at a fixed level and it just makes sure that the probes are not leaking light everywhere. It could be doing that too, uh, but that stuff, that's like a level of ray tracing that is not very user visible. Uh, so if a game's already doing expensive things like that, th this, this resolution setup makes quite a bit of sense on a hardware like the PlayStation 5. Other than that, uh, it's just a wonderful game, little to no loading, uh, and just quality. Yeah, this honestly, this could be one of the best things Housemark's ever done in the end. And I really hope that this does well for them because uh, you can really feel a lot of love poured into this project. It's and it's also interesting that it, it comes from Finland, like uh, um, Remedy. So you play this, you play Control, and you're like, what's going mm. on over there? <laughs> yeah, Housemark is excellent at uh, just being there for mm -hmm. around a console launch. We've had Stardust, we've had Resogun, mm -hmm. and it does feel like they, they always like push the envelope uh, right at the start of a console uh, generation just for getting... Filling that screen with particles and just energy but and that, getting... And that's in, you're right, Tom. But what's interesting here is just how much more vast and, uh, I guess, the, their traditional games have been arcade-style games, and I love those games. And we were actually a little bit concerned when they had announced that they have to move away from that. But what they've done here is create something that still offers some of what they had delivered previously with their arcade-style games, but offers it in a very different package. And it's very... Um, it's interesting. I mean, it is. It's a roguelike, but it's got a. It feels much more persistent. Uh, handcrafted. It does feel more persistent. It, it yeah. Does, yeah. It's. It's not just like you're redoing the same thing all the time. And the way they integrate those elements into the storytelling is also really, really creative and cool. Yeah. Another thing that I do wonder, uh, because I was playing on PlayStation Five, and it is UE Four, and I do wonder as part of the, the kind of push for more uh, PC ports, whether or not this is on the docket 
in the future at some mm. point in time due to being UE4. That'd be interesting to see if that ends up happening. It wouldn't surprise me, but I guess my question for you, Alex, and indeed John, um, Housemark, I mean, their technical jobs, you know, Up on there. another level, it goes all the way back to the demo scene. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, decades ago, but they've actually embraced Un Unreal Engine 4 for this one. Mm -hmm. was, it, was it the right move? Ah, from my perspective, yes. It probably helped them prototype the game and get it out at all in the first place. Uh, and also, <sighs> it's, di it's <laughs> difficult to compete with yeah. Unreal Engine these days, right? Like it, the amount yeah. of like staff you need and just knowledge to, to build up something comparable like that uh, is not insignificant. And even though they mm -hmm. had used their in-house technology for decades, um, the scale of this game is beyond anything they've ever made before. And I can imagine that the knowing how they had struggled with some of their most recent games in terms of sales, like Next Machina, which is incredible, uh, but it didn't sell that well from what I understand. I'm not sure that they could have invested the amount of money necessary to bring their in-house technology up to the point where they could create a game like this. There, there, There's a really good blog from Alex Tardif, uh, who is a, a, a really great graphics programmer, and it was kind of about the inevitability of Unreal. And it is actually a very thoughtful uh, essay about what it means to use middleware and things like that. And it is a very hard decision for a developer of the size like Housemark, where, okay, so you have this great Housemark in-house tech that does, uh, you know, Raymarch, SDF, voxels, explosions with tons of particles everywhere, but can it make a third-person game? Uh, maybe. Uh, can it do character animation like that? I don't know. Unreal already has all these things done. It's maybe less efficient and you have to adapt your workflow for it, but at the same time, it's already there. Exactly. Uh, so it's a very different investment of your working hours. Uh, it's a hard decision. I think in the end, it's pretty successful here especially uh, considering the, the way the game turned out in the end. Uh, I think, yeah, it was probably the right choice. I think uh, from my perspective, um, we've reached the point now where Epic have got, how can I describe it? A brain trust of talent in the graphics rendering space that, that is absolutely phenomenal. And to actually turn your back on that and go your own route to produce your own technology that can compete with that. That is actually a really difficult decision to make. And I salute anybody who does decide to actually, you know, produce their own game engine because, you know, what Epic are producing these days and just the sort of buying power they have for talent. And in actual fact, um, I was speaking to a technical director a while back who's finding it really difficult to hire because um, essentially Epic and Unity, you know, they can make mm -hmm. top level pitches yeah. to oh, yeah. all of the best Tons graphics of money. talent. So it's actually quite difficult for them, you know, and this is a AAA top tier developer responsible for one of the biggest games, having difficulties finding uh, great tech staff because the deals that Epic and Unity can offer are just so immense. So, I'm kind of heartened by what you're saying about Returnal. I haven't had the chance to play it yet. Um, I'm heartened by it because it sounds to me like it's the right call. Housemark have, have basically been able to tap into this state-of-the-art renderer. But at the same time, they've managed to put their own mark on it. They've managed to add their own layer. 
still very much a housemark game by the look of it. So, um, yeah, I, I guess the only other question, and I hesitate to bring it up, but everybody is talking about it, is the concept that it's £70. Pounds. It's like a hugely expensive game. What do you make of the value proposition? Oh, uh, man. John, what do you reckon? Yeah, that's... I mean, this is definitely a game worth full price, but it's not so. This isn't really about Returnal. This is about this push to the higher price bracket for all new games. Like, I could say seventy USD, which is I think what they charge for it in the US. That's not right. unreasonable. Uh, mm -hmm. But the the European and UK prices and Australian prices. I think the Australian price is over a hundred USD. Uh, if you can, yeah, convert that. Uh, and, you know, it's like 80 euros here. Like it is, let's, let's put it this way. I, I was somebody that when I really liked a game like this, I would go out and buy the game straight away. Even if we got review code, I often went out and bought my own physical copy of it in the case that I really liked the game. Uh, I haven't been doing that lately because I just can't afford to do that with these new games right now. I will eventually add them to my collection, no doubt, when the price drops. But, like, th these new releases are just too darn expensive right now, uh, I think. Mm -hmm. that, and I fear that this could create problems as well because the very biggest games, the biggest games, will continue to get those sales no matter what. I, I'm not worried about that. But I am a little bit worried about the slightly less big games that are being released for this mm -hmm. price point and people being like, oh, I can't really justify that. And then they end up selling worse than they might have at a lower price point. Uh, so it's really difficult to say how this is going to go for them. <clears throat> I mean, we've seen expensive stuff before, like the N64 era, uh, new games then, you know, due in part to the cartridge cost. Uh, they were pretty much like at this price level. That's, that's kind of what you were paying for a lot of those new games at the time mm, Turok. uh yeah but nobody <laughs> so i mean i get it budgets are going up it's an expensive time but you, it's almost like got to read the room like with what's been going on in the world lately and everything and the state of things and uh i don't know it, it feels like the wrong time for this increase and my fear is that this is going to drive the success of services which uh i you know i want them yeah, to, i want I there to opinion. be physical game releases still but it is starting to get too expensive and then you have all these services coming coming out and it's just like is this going to be the nail in the coffin i'm i'm a little bit worried about that so in your theoretical scenario where uh you're not worried about like large massive triple a call of duties releasing games at plus 70 euros or 80 um but then if that level of price is still used for like the double a or single a or whatever developer like housemark here that they'll see their sales pushed lower uh due to the fact that they're competing with these large titles um and also people are just going to be uh apprehensive about giving out so much money that's where you did say like it does make you worried about games uh service offerings as a competitor a competitor my gosh english um but uh, you know, Games Pass in this scenario is actually would be really good for something like yeah, Returnal in I, the aspect that it would give them a steady, hopefully, depending on the way the model works. Let, let me clarify that. Input. Yeah, it, yeah. it is good that these services allow more people to experience games. I'm not denying that. I just don't want this to kill the uh, the retail market as yeah, well. Yeah, for that, sure. That's my yeah. only concern. And it, yeah. 
But you're right. For this game, it is concerning something like Returnal because it is so unique and different. I hope the takeaway, if it doesn't meet sales expectation, isn't, oh, I guess we can't do weird and different things. We better make open world game 21. Uh, yeah, it's, by the way, really different than most of Sony's offering in the like past like couple years. Yeah, it's really it's, good. It's, it's this really feels cool. like like classic PlayStation to me in a way that um, I, I hope we see more of, but I don't know. <laughs> so I hope it succeeds for them. Absolutely. And it kind of comes hot on the heels of our discussion last week or the week before, where we were talking about Sony seemingly doubling down on their franchises, yeah. their existing franchises, and not experimenting on titles so like this, this. Yeah, this game succeeding is, I think, weirdly important to the console, in a way, and to the future of PlayStation. Uh, not to put too much on their shoulders, but games like this, they really need to do well. And I hope it does. I, I, in in this case, I will actually um, shell out for a copy straight away because I do want to support this game. But you know, a lot of the other big stuff coming up, I can wait. Okay, so let's move on to, I guess, our final section. Uh, we're going to be talking about Patreon Q and A. It's been a really successful part of the uh, Digital Foundry supporter program. Get some fantastic questions coming in. I love this part. And mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, the first question from uh, Oliver McKenzie, which I guess is aimed at me, about 10 years ago. Wow, we're going back here. Richard used to talk about the concept of a perceptual 60 frames per second, the idea that in a 60 FPS game, brief drops to somewhat lower frame rates will often not be noticeable. Um, do I still think about that? Um, I don't really talk about that anymore because, firstly, the question of perception changes from person to person. Uh, so, you know, something that I don't notice, John might notice. Uh, definitely. Uh, so, um, but in terms of the question here, we were talking about Call of Duty. So Call of Duty, it's a title, a series where typically they would allow frame rate to drop from 60 in cutscenes. And when you've got like shaky camera and... Um, uh, you know, cutscenes and stuff, the drops are less noticeable and they are um, probably not going to be picked up on by most people. But at the same time, you can have, and this is kind of like the classic example where I think it was uh, Mario Kart on the Wii U, which ran yeah. 50, 59 frames per second. <sighs> and uh, we picked that up at the time. Once you see it, you can't unsee it because of the nature of the content, always in motion. Yeah. A lot of lateral, left-right uh, motion. So this is actually something where, you know, one losing one frame per second shouldn't make any kind of difference at all. You shouldn't. Most people probably didn't perceive it, but once you see it, once you're locked onto it, you mm -hmm. can't really unsee it. Yes. What do you reckon about all of this, John? See, this this is a really interesting topic, and this this really ties in when we give the frame rate data. I often look at the conversations around it and I really think it's extremely critical to interpret it in a way where you can understand where and why drops are occurring, how frequent, uh, because, you know, let's say a game occasionally will drop to like 50 frames per second. We'll say it's a 60 FPS game during big explosions or something. You get these drops to like, how about all the way down to 40 and it's like, whoa, that's a huge drop. But then you have another game that runs at pretty much a consistent 57 to 58 FPS, like 90% of the time, rarely actually getting all the way to the 60. The game that drops all the way to 40 
but is usually 60 is going to look infinitely better uh, to my eyes. And so people would look at the graph. They'll take a screenshot of the lowest part and they'll say, look how bad this is. And then this other one they'll show that's like averaging 57 all the time. This one's way better. But in reality, that's not the case. And that's, that's just an example of how important it is to understand the context around frame rate. And, but the, the thing is though, is as Richard said, this is something, the perception of frame rate is going to vary from person to person. I'm really possibly overly sensitive to it, but it's, it's how frequent it occurs and in what the context that it occurs in that really matters. Like, like you said, that 59 FPS thing in Mario Kart 8 on the Wii, that drove me nuts. I hated it. it awful. <laughs> I hate it too, man. It's just this terrible. constant tick that feels wrong. Or, you know, you play like a 2D platform game and you're getting these weird, like, things, you know. And this this also gets into the whole bat, uh, incorrect frame pacing uh, thing where you're actually hitting 30 FPS all the time, but the, the frame persistence is off. So... You know, and a lot of times in old school games and where the term slowdown came from, especially in like uh, shooters, is they would actually continue to draw every frame and the game would just run at a slower speed temporarily. And in those cases, I actually think that that looks pretty good compared to like frame skipping. It can be as long as it doesn't happen too often. Um, it doesn't really impact the fluidity, but weird issues with frame skipping or like, you know, regularly failing to hit the target that stuff tends to be the most important for me so yeah mm -hmm. i could go on and on so, about this but <laughs> i should stop i don't know i kind of get a weird kick out of seeing you know once there's uh explosions flying you know in those in that case where you mentioned that there is an instance in a perfectly 60 game otherwise that it'll drop uh when you let loose on the explosions and the firepower that's kind of fun to watch sometimes. Sometimes it's in, it's almost intentional. Like I think it like in uh, Border Down on the Dreamcast. Every time you finish off a boss, or also Ikaruga, uh, they like flood the screen with alpha particles. So there's tons of overdraw, and it just tanks the frame rate for about you know five seconds. So you get this like epic feeling of like man, everything's blowing up. Uh, but there could be other like that. Actually, takes me back to uh, when I first played Deus Ex in the year 2000 on my machine, uh, it was very heavy on the hard drive. And every time I would trigger an explosion, you know, you get the hard drive access, the whole game would seize up momentarily. And then the explosion would be finished. And I used to think, man, that explosion must be so cool. Cause my, yeah. <laughs> I, there's a couple of games which weave it into the game design. Like, uh, do you remember Bangayo? on i think ds uh certainly ds had that. n64 um, dreamcast was the first one those two and then they did dreamcast they did a ds game which was a different one yeah uh, the ds one which, which was remarkable i think it takes up like, like two yeah. megabytes or something mm -hmm. um it uh, yeah when that frame it's intentionally meant to drop the frame rate so you can navigate these areas oh and, yeah i mean that gets into that whole thing with uh uh that that awesome dude who's doing the the super nes hacks where he's implementing sa1 support into games that had a ton of slowdown like his first project was gradius 3 and the mm. initial release it removed all slowdown so it was completely <laughs> locked 60 fps but that game it suddenly becomes almost impossible to play because some of those scenes are yep. so dense and difficult to navigate that at full speed you're just you can barely handle it so he actually did a, an update that maintains the smooth frame rate but actually takes some of that into account and makes it more playable so it is a yeah, curious sometimes. thing. Sometimes. <laughs> Be careful what you wish for sometimes. Exactly. 
Well, I think uh, where we can actually round this one off is the fact that, John, you're super sensitive to frame rate, mm -hmm. but VRR is actually doing a lot of heavy lifting oh, dude, it's... in terms of smoothing off the experience. And I think basically what you're noticing isn't really a drop to frame rate, it's a spike to frame time. And uh, when that spike is smoothed out, when the frame persistence is actually in line with you know the actual load on the GPU, it's far less of an issue. That that's exactly why a completely consistent thirty frames per second can look okay to my eyes. It's that consistency in frame times, and that's that's the key. And that's exactly what VRR solves. So it gets rid of the the spikes and it just smooths it out. Uh, and it really is effective. I mean, games between the fifty and sixty FPS range, especially. Even I can barely tell that the frame rate is changing at all. It, it it throws me for a loop. When I first looked at the Crisis Remastered updated patch, for instance, I was like, wow, this is a locked 60 in the 4K res, uh, mode on Xbox. And then I actually switched off VRR for capture, and it was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Let's move on to the next question. I think it's a good one for Alex, since it's uh, sure. kind of... Almost related to what we were talking yeah, about. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> this is from Glasgow Graham. Alex, what is it about alpha transparencies that has such an impact on performance? Uh, usually bandwidth sapping. Uh, that's what they tend to do. Uh, and there could be some other uh, reasons why, depending upon how alpha is done, uh, it can also be like pretty shading intensive, too. Uh, and that's basically about it. Uh, bandwidth has been kind of steadily going up over time, but I would say a little bit less than uh, like shading power. So even nowadays, a game that throws a lot of transparency around will um, still tank the frame rate on big, big, big GPUs. And I think we're gonna maybe over time start seeing this less um, because uh, alpha is, like the way the reason why we even use alpha is because it's trying to represent dust and particles or it's trying to represent leaves on a tree well when in reality those are actually little discrete things like the little discrete particles themselves or I mean, yeah, maybe that, leaves that are on a tree exactly. are actually geometry that ties right? back into the origins of video games with like sprites you always had that transparent uh color yeah. so you can yeah. see through things it's the only way to make those objects look smooth that don't have completely squared off surfaces Exactly, like that, like that cyan color that they would usually use. Um, and uh, I think we'll see be seeing a little bit less transparency overdraw, frame rate death explosions in games over time as uh, we start moving over to non-alpha transparency-based effects work for certain things. Uh, we already saw it with, uh, you know, frustum-aligned voxel fog. Yep. That used to be always just like, there's billboards everywhere in the environment. Tons of Japanese games would always be like, here's all this fog. It's just like six billion billboards and it only runs on PS2. Um, that's kind of like what used to be the thing, but then it changes over time. And I think we're going to see that too with uh, like uh, foliage. Foliage in games, I think, is going to start maybe in the next five years, start being more actual geometry and it'll look better too. What's yeah. interesting to me, Alex, is the way... Is like we have seen an example of of a game console where the bandwidth was uh, kind of overspecced compared to other elements of the system, with like PlayStation Two, where it could it could throw around so many transparencies without issues because it just had so much bandwidth to spare. 
but it had other limitations and areas, which meant that that never really became a bottleneck in most cases. So, and you, that's why you, when you had, that's why the Metal Gear Solid port was so interesting or Silent Hill 2, because those games were designed for PlayStation 2. They use a ton of alpha transparencies and the more powerful Xbox, they had to cut those effects way down because uh, that is, you know, that was a more traditional, or I guess what would become a more traditional GPU approach, right? And uh, that had a much greater cost. So, but obviously now, you know, uh, like, I think like you say, it's what's key is like finding new ways to do this, these types, because it's not just, it doesn't have to be this way. There's got, there's, there's different ways to sort of replicate the desired effect now. And the technology is there to like sort of pick and choose that. But I mean, fundamentally, transparency is, uh, it's always been a big issue. I mean, back in the day, it just came down to, you know, calculating like, okay, you got one object overlapping another object. You, you find a way to determine, don't draw the object behind it. But when something's transparent, it becomes more resource intensive to actually draw the transparent thing while also keeping in account that now there's an object behind it that also has to be drawn. And the more you layer that up, the heavier it gets. And uh, mm. it's just more math, basically. Yeah, usually the way they, they deal with a, a heavy buildup of alpha these days is uh, throwing DRS to kind of soften the blow. <laughs> yeah. And you, you can always see it. But Actually, it's successful. funny, c coming off the Quake video, I realized in its original form, Quake has like no alpha transparency as far as I can see. you maybe. Yeah. Like just they don't why. they don't even they don't even try. Like they just like nope, we're not we're not doing anything like that. <laughs> the uh there are some interesting things about alpha transparency overdraw. Uh so one usage of VRS is uh variable rate shading is to apply it to alpha uh on like a, a either in the VRS tier 2 style where it's you know, looking at the screen and saying, this is perceptually not obvious, but also the way devs have been doing it forever is just always having like quarter or half resolution or eighth res, you know. There, dude, to, there's like an art that. to that though. And if you, do yeah, it, yeah. if you art up your assets in just the right way, then, you know, doing quarter eighth res actually can look pretty good. I think Killzone 2 is still a great example of this where it looks awesome. There's, a, there's also a good um, blog article about using MSAA and like uh, with alpha to make it look like they're not quarter or eighth res very easily by uh, Matt Petneo, uh, the, the person who worked oh, at, at RAD uh, yeah. or still works at RAD as their lead. Um, uh, that's a really good blog. I think it was also used in the order probably as a yeah, result because they, they used MSAA. Um, and another, uh, there are obviously like, uh, like tools to essentially always make sure that you're, um, kind wait, of wait, like when, when you said, draw tools. When you said red, yeah, you meant ready at dawn. So ready at I, dawn. I yeah, think no, a lot of red tools. I know. Yeah. I think most people when they see red, they think red tools and they're like, what? Yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. Not ready red tools. That's something else. That's another epic family thing now, I guess. Exactly. Um, but uh, yeah, there's also like like overdraw, like because the reason why this happens often is because just I guess the the artist setting up the it shouldn't really be happening because it's actually not a very good thing to have. Uh, but like the artist just doesn't have an understanding of how much alpha is overlapping or something like that. So having a tool that just like marks out areas of the screen that are red if there's a lot of overdraw there is a good thing too. And I guess the last thing to say about alpha, since we're talking about it all uh, now, is that the way it's usually done in games, it doesn't um, guarantee order independence. So that means uh, 
when you, you see this all the time in games where there's like a sprite particle in front of all this stuff, and then all the other transparent objects behind it look like blackish colored or wrongly shaded. And you're like, that looks really weird. I just recently saw it in Metro Exodus actually. Um, this is still a problem nowadays, and there's not a really good way to do it on GPUs that is not super expensive. Uh, so I don't know. I feel like Alpha kind of sucks, and I wish it didn't exist. <laughs> that's that's my that's my opinion on Alpha. I guess to sort of round off, I've got a couple of points on this. I mean, it is basically the the reason it's expensive is that you're taking one pixel that's been drawn, and then you're having to blend it with another one. Yeah, and. Um, in terms of overall bandwidth, it can be very, very taxing. Secondly, you're quite right that the ratio between compute and bandwidth hasn't been scaling in quite the same way. And if we're talking about bandwidth monsters, it's actually quite ironic that uh, I think of the last generation consoles and even up to this one, probably the console with the best ratio between compute and bandwidth would be the PS4. Um, yeah. Actually, yeah, that's a good example. <laughs> which, which is quite remarkable, is. really. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think we'll we'll close up that one. But yeah, I just hope that um, you know there have been some quite sort of bludgeoning uh, ways to reduce that effect. So you know, uh, in the PlayStation Three era, we saw um, stuff like quarter resolution transparencies. We still see it now, I guess. And also, mm -hmm. um, you know, even top tier developers were turning explosions into opaque orange puffs which uh, don't really work particularly well. So I'm going to be interested to see how developers attack this one going forward. Actually, it's interesting. The PS4 being as balanced as it is is fascinating because the PS2 was a fill rate monster, but then the PS3 came along and, well, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. it was kind of the opposite. Was it, was, what is that one Japanese dev who was mentioning uh, Silent Hill's remaster on PlayStation 3 being like, oh, I heard the PlayStation oh. 3 was really terrible with transparency. <laughs> what was that? Oh, no, there, there was some talk from, uh, I know, Yamauchi from, uh, about, about Gran Turismo, where he was, like on PS2, they did a lot of full screen effects for like heat haze, and they were able to run the replays at 60 and have no issues like doing tons of transparency. And then suddenly on the PS3, that stuff absolutely murdered performance. It's, and I think it gave him a really difficult time with that it's game. It's kind of funny. You go back to Gran Turismo on PS3 and the car models are like so pristine, but then they intersect with any of the, the smoke and it's just like, oh. it looks like, like 320 by 240. It's amazing. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay, well, let's move on. Next question. Um, I'm going to cut this down a bit because I want to talk about Patreon, but Please. Um, really interesting one here. Can we have some videos where Alex, Alex, it's you again uses his considerable knowledge to patch up, improve, and utilize super modern hardware to show off old games in a way they could never be played in the past. For instance, maybe Reshade uh, plus Marty's RTGI shaders, 8K DSR, especially games around the crisis era. This, that's from Lee Ashton. What do you reckon? I like that idea. Um, it's almost the opposite of what we've been doing, where we go back and look at the computer from that era, playing it kind of semi-poorly, usually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I do like that idea a lot. Uh, the only thing is, um, I don't know how many people would be super interested in it on the normal YouTube channel, but in terms of Patreon stuff, that's a pretty great idea, actually. Yeah. Thing is, it would need to be quite impactful, wouldn't it? It would need some kind of showcase. I think. I think one of resolution. one of my favorite examples I fiddled around with. I think I showed you some of it, Alex. But yeah, I, yeah, you did. Jurassic Park Trespasser. Uh, yeah. You use reshade. You know, I tried some of the other. You know, the latest reshade features when you inject that into Trespasser. 
Like you play hard. around with it. You can get like bokeh depth of field to like kind of smooth out some of the low poly distant detail and uh, do a lot of other fancy tricks to it to make it look really interesting in a way that it definitely was not intended to look. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that idea a lot. Uh, but Rich is so right. Like, I don't know, sometimes just pumping up a game with art, like uh, reshade shaders is not always so great. They're no. limited. So yeah. it's hard. Yeah. It's like the early days of uh, Doom Sort. Well, the 2000s of Doom Sort Sports where everybody was putting like lens flares and, you oh, know, maybe. Yeah. All, like effects everywhere. And it ended up making it just look kind of bad. Not too great. <laughs> Okay, uh, final question here. We've got some great questions here. I think I'm going to port some of them over to next week. Uh, but this final question, would it be technically possible to feature 120 FPS videos for your Patreon users as YouTube only supports 60? You seem to be able to capture 120 FPS as you, uh, as you can show footage slowed down. Well, we can do that. Um, the question yeah. is really whether the media players in like TVs and whatnot would be able to run it at 120 FPS. Yeah. Uh, the PC side of things shouldn't be a problem, I don't think. Mm. Um, yeah, it should be fine. But yeah, we're talking about niche of a niche there, I guess. But uh, it's something we can certainly look into. It's always um, been frustrating, like uh, like exporting uh, a lot of the assets I use are definitely captured at 120 for like the FPS boost stuff. Mm -hmm. And we've got the workflow rigged up for it in Premiere where you know we can import and then export 120 H.264s and no problem. So yeah, if you've got a 120 hertz PC display, that's fine. Yeah, or a 4K TV that supports 120 hertz. I mean, there's actually, you know, this isn't a bad idea for... So what do we know what actually what happens when you are given a 120 FPS H.264 or HEVC and played on a 60 hertz screen? Do we know what happens? Really? I think it would just drop every other frame. If it does do that, there's nothing preventing us from taking our um, even 60 hertz, like the if you have like a Premiere timeline and it has like number of 60 FPS bits, but also 120 FPS ones on it, it will already do that frame dropping on the export action. But if you exported it as 120, it would actually keep those frames and double the 60 FPS one aspects. Basically what I'm trying to say is that we could technically export some of our 60 FPS videos that have 120 FPS elements in them at 120 FPS for our Patreon users. One thing, one thing to keep in mind though, Alex, I have found on PC media players, when you play a video that does not match the refresh rate, uh, for whatever reason, the PC sucks for video playback. I'm just going to say it. I hate it. It drives me nuts. It's so difficult to get completely uh, consistent frame persistence with video playback. If you play a 30 FPS video on a 60 hertz display, it never looks quite right. It's always like there's always a weird uh, frame persistence issues. Um, so it's all for me, I think it's always best to match it to that. But if you played, you know, if you had that 60 hertz sections in 120 hertz video and you played it on 120 hertz screen, then theoretically, I th it should be okay. Yeah, it should be okay. But if you, I don't, I don't know, it's video playback gets weird on, on, I think. And also, you know, I've even heard that some people have issues playing HEVCs, um, on their, PCs as is, so I don't know. Maybe we'll try it and see what people think, because it, it shouldn't be too difficult to just capture some cool gameplay and throw it up there and let people mm. play around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ori, Ori would be good. 
And uh, I guess also, um, uh, we were talking about this earlier, uh, John, but uh, there might be a technical breakthrough happening with 4K 120 capture. Oh, really? Oh, that's what? Whoa, 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 that's whoa, whoa, whoa. news. I yeah. haven't heard about this. Uh, we'll talk about it later, but potentially it <laughs> I, I, could. I, I need to investigate it. Should I say what it is? No, let's let's see okay. whether we can actually deliver something first before we tease all right, it too all right, much. All right, yeah. But, uh, oh, gosh. Yeah, that, yeah, but it's it's quite ironic, really, that most of the 120 hertz modes out there, you could actually get a perfectly good result by capturing at 1440p 120, mm-hmm. uh, which yeah. you can do with uh, the Ava Media cards. But uh, yeah, I, we'll, we'll we'll circle back to that. In fact, how many 4K 120 games are there? There's uh, Ori, obviously. Mm-hmm. Actual. That's it, really. No, there's going to be a. It's probably going to be some simpler ones. What about um, the tourist? That is, yeah, 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 good one. Stuff like that, I think, is what we have. There's, there's not going to be many. I don't think hitting uh, 120 hertz is is difficult. Yeah, so I want to round off by talking about Patreon because uh, we're filming this on the day that we're relaunching where we have no idea how this is going to be received. That's that's right. (laughs) Um, But I think we've kind of tried to do this the right way. Uh, First of all, if you're watching Digital Foundry normally, you don't have the funds to support us at all uh, or you can't go beyond our $5 tier. Everything crucial that you need to see you will be seeing uh, on the yeah. channel it might be a, there might be a bit of time delay to it but you know i'm i'm hugely i haven't seen it quite yet um but i want to see john's quake df retro um if you support df retro if you invest in that you'll get to see it earlier but otherwise you'll get to see it um you know a bit further on down the road uh but from my perspective We've got a video going out today which explains my thinking about the whole thing, which is that it is about trying to rebalance things a little bit. Um, You know, as I said earlier, back in the day, you would buy a magazine Mm -hmm. and you would be buying the products that a journalist has put together. And the quality of journalism since the magazine era, I'd say, has gone up by an order of magnitude. The amount of effort that has to go into making a video um, you need to do everything that, you know, you need to be proficient at everything you needed to be proficient at to do a magazine article. But in addition to being a great writer, you've got to be a great editor. Uh, you've got to be a great, almost like a cinematographer in a way, <laughs> uh, in terms of, you know, making games look good and exciting and stuff like that. And it's, a, it's, it's something that we're giving away for free. And that's absolutely fine. That's the that's the model, you know. That's kind of the, mm-hmm. the arena we've entered. But we are on YouTube, where we know nothing about the platform. Where you know we've seen it with uh, a couple of channels in the past. Their views have halved overnight. They don't know why. Their income would have been slashed. Oh, it's yeah. kind of like you know uh, we just don't have any kind of control over the platform. We do the best that we can. But you know this whole concept of supporting the team. Is of, if you can, it's of, of crucial importance. And it goes for any of the creators, really, that uh, are out there that you are really invested in, not just Digital Foundry. But, you know, we have tried to produce something which is aimed at the super hardcore uh, with the premium tier. So you'll be seeing some of the experiments I've been doing behind the scenes. This will all eventually appear as uh, content once the research is complete, you know, some of the image quality analysis stuff that we're doing in the background, we can share that, but you know, there's no point sharing it when we 
publicly when we don't have a final product. But the process, we can share that. That's going to be interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, John sent me the challenge. I've talked about it in the past of AI upscaling. Yeah. That'll be a Solitude E3 2000 trailer. You'll be able to see that if you uh, if you subscribe and you'll be able to see the, uh, the processes that I went through there. And... Um, awesome idea from our patreon supporters uh, on the discord which was you know i was just just idly talking about the archive that we've got oh yeah and um yeah the kind of uh stuff that i've got going back to the year 2010 so we've got the final fantasy uh 13 assets this face-off that i did back in the day that was like gigantic for the time that data has been sitting on a 500 gigabyte hard drive <laughs> for 11 years now and uh, but yeah basically uh, two takeaways from that first of all watching those 720p assets on a modern display it's hideous <laughs> it really is bad and john came up with the idea of doing nearest neighbor three by three upscales to 4k and the content looks really a lot better it than does scaling. with how important scaling is that's what i'm saying like yeah. 720p can look pretty all right still on a modern screen yeah. but it just depends on how you scale it yeah so you know that's been really interesting you know it's just been stuff i've been doing in my spare time that i can share on the patreon and uh, i think people are going to get a kick out of it and there are going to be some larger scale projects hopefully next week maybe the week after but hopefully next week Alex will return with Tech Focus, which will be a time-limited mm -hmm. exclusive for Patreon supporters. And um, I guess when it comes to DF Retro, I mean, DF Retro is a passion project. It's a passion project that can go in either one of two directions when we put it on YouTube. We can either do exceptionally well, um, which is great, um, but it can also not do particularly well and in which case, you know, the bean counters back in <laughs> Digital Foundry are saying, what's, you know, what's the, why aren't you doing more on, you know, PlayStation 5 and whatnot? So why'd you do this instead um, of Outriders? Yeah, Tom. <laughs> I'm sorry, all right. <laughs> yeah. And it's a, you know, it's a legitimate question from, you know, but yeah. this comprehensively answers that by saying, look, we've got a dedicated community out there who will support Digital Foundry. It's, a, it's going to be a small community, but it's 100% committed and they're willing to back the creator. This is like a game changer for us That's in my terms hope. of, well, exactly, yes. Again, it's a game changer, hopefully. We really do need your support here because it's, um, I, you know, I urge you to watch some of these old DF Retro episodes where John has put everything into it. It's a personal passion project as well as a vo as well as a career. It's a vocation. This is what John was, in my opinion. This is what John was put on this planet to do. Is <laughs> 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 to basically share his enthusiasm and his knowledge and his experience with these games, and to entertain the rest of us in the process and for us to learn from it. And it's just. It sure Phenomenal. is fun. But, yep. So look, I understand that the majority of people out there probably are not going to be able to support us. And you have my assurance that, you know, the content lineup on the DF YouTube channel will be unchanged. In fact, it could even be embellished a little. In fact, the fact that we're doing this show at all is it? every yeah. week, it all derives from the DF supporter program. And... Um, 
Yeah, so that's not going to change. In theory, it could actually get better. But, you know, for our mental health, for our kind of... Yeah. Um, uh, for our sort of job satisfaction, being able to be liberated, first of all, from the brutal demands of the YouTube platform. Secondly, to share our passions and to know that there's an audience out there that appreciate it enough to support us in doing that. Hugely valuable. John, have you got anything to add to that? No, I mean, you kind of said it all there, but yeah, this is uh, this is a good opportunity for me and Audie, I guess, as well, to really, like, do the stuff that I love to do the most, right? Like, I do enjoy the regular comparisons and other videos as well, but um, this is the stuff that I think about more often, and, and these are the types of games I'm playing in my free time, and I just find it really exciting and interesting to explore it, but uh, because of that, you know, it takes more time to make this stuff. And it's harder to justify sometimes, unfortunately. So, and mm. it's too, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's, this is, this is my best hope for being able to do more of the stuff that I love and hopefully others that really do enjoy it as well. So that's, uh, that's the plan. But I, the big thing is we're moving to like monthly episodes now for DF retro because the release has been sporadic depending on what's happening in the other console space, like in the modern stuff. If there's a busy period there, like launches of new machines, then it's kind of impossible to do that stuff. So, but this is a, this is a way to kind of ensure that we can actually have a regular schedule on this stuff and get the chance to do it once a month. And a lot mm. of this is going to feed back into the main channel. You know, if John is doing a, a, a DF Retro episode, uh, that means that we're going to need to bring on more people to do uh, more of the standard, uh, you know, um, analysis videos yes we need to fund the cloning program so we can have more time <laughs> yeah, <analysis. that's> <laughs> yeah oh gosh oh um, god can you imagine that two axes yeah. I'm, I'm just curious rich so I if john's it. vocation is to do df retro videos uh what's audi's vocation on this earth um <laughs> probably to annoy me <laughs> By the way, Audi is still alive, everyone. He hasn't made an appearance in a while, but as you can see from this photo here, he's still very much alive. He's, uh, yeah, he's, he's as you'll see on the uh, on the DF Retro Patreon content, he's alive and well, and yeah. he's uh, thriving in the Retro Grief Cave. That's amazing. <laughs> We've come up with some new plans for what's in the box, Rich, as well. So he'll be reappearing yeah, on the weekly soon because uh, there's some bangers coming your way. <laughs> Okay, I don't really know how to take that. Um, I think the irony is is that, you know, I'm actually paying him to do this. I don't know. This is just like phenomenal. It's just like ultimate masochism. But look, that's it. That's the Patreon. It's going to be awesome. It is awesome. We've got some great stuff up there already for um, people who have uh, joined the supporter program. More is coming. And wow, that DF Retro Quake episode um it's brings long. back a lot of memories i was there when it was all kicking off i played requake yeah i know and, i wanted to get uh, you in there but ended up not really having time but yeah you actually had the verite back in the day i did yeah and i've said it once and i'll say it again carmack dropped that thing like a hot potato <laughs> <laughs> they, they he did. moved on to to 3dfx you know 
I was you're, devastated. You're not wrong, but I mean, V Quake is really good and has advantages over Geo Quake. And beyond that, you know, the the Verite supports a bunch of Quake Engine games that came after, so you can still play like Quake Two and other things on there. So, there, so does, is there ever a uh, successor to the Verite that was just faster? Yes. There was the V2000, wasn't it? There's it? the V2000 series, and I have one of those as is well. That... But here's the thing. Because of the way V-Quake was architected, the speed doesn't really change much. Oh, no. Is it the CPU <laughs> thing? The CPU yeah, issue? Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. They, they, they're basically treating it like a, like a special software render, if you will, but they can do certain things on that card that you couldn't really do on a CPU at the time. That's how you get mm. there, so... The only way to improve it a little bit, they did add a command line variable to offload a certain operations to the CPU because CPUs were very slow when the when the rendition arrived. But you know later on they got faster. Uh, you can actually speed it up a little bit by like shifting that away from the Verite. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm going to look forward to watching that episode because I still haven't seen it at the at the time of filming this. Well, you've seen you've seen, seen little bits I've and seen pieces. Bits and pieces. Yeah, yeah. jobs been sharing. Yeah, hugely excited. Okay, well, look, thanks guys for joining me on this one, and thank you for watching. Uh, and if you did like the content, like, subscribe, share, ring the notification bell. Uh, and what happens there? It's quite remarkable. Whenever we release a new video, you get instant yes, instant notifications. DF Patreon, I'm not going to talk about that anymore. You know, everything you need to know. Uh, but that's all from us for now. Thanks for watching.